Welcome to Grand County Matters. My name is John Sanderson. This show is for and about all of the people who live, work, and love Grand County. It doesn't matter what part of the county you call home, I hope to have something for everyone. This edition of Grand County Matters is brought to you by Sanderson Commercial Real Estate. The name Grand County Trusts when specialization matters. Online at sandersonre.com. Hello and welcome back to Grand County Matters. Today, I'm joined by Patrick Brower, author of Killdozer, the true story of the Colorado Bulldozer Rampage. Just for background, on June 4th of 2004, Marvin Hemeyer unleashed a gigantic armored tank-like bulldozer on Granby, Colorado. It was an act of defiant but misguided revenge upon those who he perceived had done him wrong in a long series of local property disputes. Patrick, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I, uh, I'm very excited about our conversation today. This is a, a fascinating story. I've you know, heard local folks in Granby talk about this particular incident. Um, I've seen the Netflix show. I've talked to you about this on several occasions. So I'm really interested in not only a little overview of the event itself, and, and that which ran up to it. But but the thing that I think is the most fascinating, as we've discussed, is what's happened since then and the current state of affairs in the world and how it may relate back to Marvin. Well, I think that uh, the current side is really critical, but let me jump right in to just quickly summarize what happened. Uh, your little intro there was right on. Marv built a, uh, a bulldozer tank out of a Komatsu uh, uh, bulldozer. Uh, he uh, armed it with steel and concrete, and he placed in the armor uh, three weapons, a 50 caliber rifle from the rear, a 30 caliber rifle from the front, and a uh, 223 from the uh, right side. And uh, on June 4th at about 2.30 in the afternoon, he drove that thing out of the building where he built it and uh, proceeded to get in a fight with his neighbor as he destroyed the then Mountain Park concrete batch plant. So he destroyed a, a large building there and then he went and destroyed the batch plant. Uh, he got in a gun battle with... Uh, with Cody Dochev, he got in a gun battle with uh, the sheriff's office of the Granby Police Department and the Colorado State Patrol. Uh, it's a miracle that Cody wasn't killed. Uh, Marv released a fusillade of bullets at Cody as Cody was trying to stop him with his front end loader. Nine of those bullets pierced the bed of the uh, front end loader bucket. It's a miracle none of those hit Cody. Um, I'm bringing this up just because a lot of people say that Marv didn't want to hurt anybody uh, during the rampage, and uh, I think that's uh, manifestly uh, untrue. Uh, Marv fired at Cody. Marv fired at the police. He destroyed buildings that could have killed people. Um, 
Anyway, after the battle and the destruction at the batch plant, he then proceeded up into town and destroyed uh, the front and side of Mountain Parks Electric. Then he uh, smashed in uh, Maple Street Builder's office building as he headed up Main Street. Then he went to the Granby Town Hall, completely destroyed it. Uh, all along, kind of having little skirmishes with guns with uh, people in the battle. In that first phase, Glenn Trainer, who was then the Grant County Undersheriff, uh, had climbed on top of the dozer to try to figure out a way to stop it. Uh, he fired several rounds into what he thought were weaknesses in the armor, but he never was able to penetrate any of the armor or the little apparent weak spots. Uh, from there, the dozer went on and attacked the uh, what was then the Liberty Savings Bank building, smashed up the side of that, then went down the street and uh, knocked down a few uh, aspen trees on the way, but then proceeded to completely destroy the uh, Sky High News building, where I was at the time. I was in the building at the time trying to cover the event, and uh, I was almost killed. Uh, I was in the building, and Marv slammed into it. It's a miracle I got out of there alive. Um, anyway, then he went on to, uh, after smashing up the Sky High News building, he then went and proceeded over toward the Thompson & Sons properties further east in Granby, smashed up uh, basically real estate and property that was owned by the Thompson family. So that was an XL building that was uh, on their property. It was the Thompson & Sons garage. He smashed up some of their equipment uh, and he destroyed the home of the Thompson family where Thelma Thompson, the mother of the Thompson boys, had been sleeping only 20 minutes prior. She had been uh, ushered out of there just in time. Uh, then he proceeded to uh, uh, knock over a few uh, trailers and stuff behind the 7-Eleven, which were owned by uh, Thompson and Sons. Then he drove down <clears throat> to the property uh, where the uh, independent gas propane tanks are stored uh, and uh, proceeded to try to, to shoot the propane tanks with his 50 caliber rifle. Uh, luckily, he missed uh, largely because he was shooting into his own armor, but he did succeed in shooting out two transformers. Uh, I think what Gar Marv's goal was, was to puncture one of the tanks with uh, one of the rounds and then shoot one of the transformers to create sparks to ignite the uh, escaping gas and cause an explosion and, and or massive fire. Uh, thank God that didn't work. Uh, then he proceeded to uh, head back into town. Um, in the meantime, he had had two battles with the giant scrapers that were owned by the county driven by Clark Branstetter. Uh, the, the Killdozer won both battles. Um, and then he went to the Gambles uh, building and uh, completely destroyed it before the dozer overheated and just stalled out. Uh, part of the dozer was sunk into a very small basement area, but uh, the real reason he got stuck was that the, the engine just overheated and Footage of the event shows clearly that uh, there was a massive uh, minor explosion of the uh, coolant lines in the dozer before he destroyed Gambles. And then Marv uh, 
shot himself uh, probably 10 minutes after the dozer stopped moving. And that's where the rampage stopped. It's a fascinating story, Patrick. I, it, I do think it's amazing that no one was injured. I mean, notwithstanding Marvin taking his own life. Of course, I didn't know the guy, but you know, it's interesting that so many people said that he was this easygoing fella, but he, not that day. That's for sure. No, Marv was, uh, I knew Marv fairly well. I had had business dealings with him over the years. He had advertised in the newspaper. Uh, I interviewed him for stories. He gave me letters to the editor. I actually uh, rented cars from him. Uh, he actually repaired mufflers for me. So on one level, I think on a business dealing level, Marv could be pretty nice and, uh, you know, seemingly reasonable. But, you know, I did have a few moments with him where we disagreed over financial matters and suddenly things turned dark with Marv. Um, and many other people had similar experiences where Marv was friendly and, and seemingly a good guy until you had the slightest disagreement with him. And if it was money oriented, he just kind of went off the deep end and got vindictive and threatening. Uh, so that was the experience of a lot of different people over the years with Marv. But he was well liked by a group of snowmobilers who went snowmobiling with him a lot. Uh, he had friends who he bowled with. I mean, he, you know, he, he wasn't quite the social outcast that someone might paint him to be. He actually had friends and girlfriends and stuff like that in the county. So uh, the idea that somehow the community and stabbed him in the back and was out to get him just strikes me as a, as a long shot based on the friends he had and the relationships he had in the community. Um, Marv, however, paints a picture that the people at Granby stabbed him in the back and were out to get him and all that. If you listen to his tapes, uh, that's what he says. Uh, I didn't really see that. Well, the footage, uh, the YouTube footage from your website, I think is truly amazing. Um, I searched a little bit on YouTube after we planned to have this talk, and I was just amazed at the type of the damage itself. And it was like... A, I'm not trying to make light of it. Please don't misunderstand. It was, oh, like, a, it was like a train wreck in slow motion. Well, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Um, it was almost, I mean, I remember sort of chuckling to myself in fear as I ran out of my building and snapped a few photos of this dozer just, you know, moving in apparent slow motion, impervious, because when he hit our building, uh, I ran out of the back and ran up to the side to try to take a photo or two. I was scared, but at the time, police were shooting at him. And, of course, the shooting didn't affect the progress of the dozer at all. And I just kind of thought, my God, what is this thing that's just impervious to any resistance, Wrap, you know, just slowly tearing up our building? And he did total our building, cost us half a million dollars, completely destroyed the building. Um, so yeah, a train wreck in slow motion. Absolutely. That's what it was. Well, so before we go forward, let's, let's look back just for a sec. What do you think, what do you think set him off, you know, from your perspective, based upon your research? 
Well, the source of Marv's original serious conflict with people in the town started over uh, his attempts to sell property that he had bought at an FDIC auction in 1991. Marv bought a two-acre parcel that had a primitive garage on it for $40,000 at the auction. He immediately, that day at the auction, tried to sell it for twice what he paid to Cody Dochev, who had also been on it. Uh, that didn't work. Um, Marv contends there was a dispute. There's different versions of that at the auction, but for the next uh, eight years, Marv tried really hard to sell that property to Cody Dochev uh, at increasingly inflated prices. Several times they'd agreed on a price and then they'd come to close the deal and Marv would say, no, I want another 100,000 or whatever. And so finally came to the point where Marv confronted Cody's son and said, if you don't come up with my price, I'm going to fight you through the town process the whole way. And uh, that's what he did. The Dochefs were in the process of developing a concrete batch plant right next door to that property. And they could have used that Marv's property to do that. And, uh, but they never could work out a deal. And at some point, Cody finally just bought other property nearby. And at that point, Marv was pretty much out of the running. And uh, I think that angered him. And then when they proceeded to move forward with developing the plant, and Marv had not been able to sell the property at the prices he wanted, he was going to get back at him. And he did it by initiating a process through the town of opposing the uh, zoning approvals for the batch plant. Initially, Marv had lots of uh, support from the neighborhood. Uh, the town even wavered several times in Marv's favor, but ultimately uh, the public support waned as the batch plant project became better. And uh, the Dochefs did a lot of things to make it more palatable to the town and the community. And by the end of the uh, town approval process, uh, it was approved and uh, in the meantime, Marv had launched a lawsuit against the Dochefs and the town of Granby to fight their decisions. Uh, Marv lost that lawsuit. But I think that the ultimate moment for Marv came on a day in January when he saw that the town was going to approve the project. Marv showed up to fight the approval. He had come to meetings with 20 or 30 people back By that point, the community was not on his side anymore. And uh, I think it was that night when Marv just decided that he was going to do something to get back at him. And from that point on, that would have been in uh, early 2002, no, early 2001, I think Marv was thinking about what he was going to do to get back at the Dochefs in the town. Well, by some reports, he worked on that that dozer for almost a year and a half before he drove it out of the garage. Well, he physically worked on it, actually putting on the armor and stuff. We know for 
probably only six or seven months because he didn't put it into the uh, shed until October of 2003. And uh, the rampage was in June of 2004. Now, he may have been ordering materials and supplies Mm -hmm. several months in advance of that. So, yeah, it could have been a year of indirect, you know, five months of indirect work, ordering supplies, but then actual building it. I think he did a very intense seven works of labor in that uh, concrete shed and that uh, aluminum shed where he built it. Yeah, pretty amazing. And he Um, built it in secrecy and he went out of his way to to disguise what he was doing. Uh, He put surveillance cameras up on outside the building so he'd know if anybody was approaching when he was working on it. He would work at night. He would spend the night in the shed for two or three days in a row just so he could get a lot of work done. And uh, Yeah, I'd say seven months of physical labor on it and probably four or five months of preparation and probably two years of brooding about it before that. <laughs> well, before we before we look at the impact that this has had on current events, tell me, how did you did you work with the folks at Netflix that are not that the producers of the movie rather? Um, were you involved in that production at all? Right. The film is called uh, Tread, T-R-E-A-D. And uh, they retained me as what they call a consulting producer. And mainly they just uh, wanted me to work with them on arranging interviews, hooking them up with people who knew what happened. And I also had tons of archival stuff and a lot of the actual evidence of what happened before and after. Um, I had a lot of uh, uh, photographs, documents, uh, all my back, all the newspapers that uh, we that had been uh, written both before and after the event. Um, you know, I John, I covered all but one of the town meetings uh, that took place where Marv was uh, fighting the Dochefs. So starting in uh, 1999 until 2002, I was at every single town meeting where Marv fought and or disputed what was happening at the town level. I interviewed Marv many times in connection with it. Uh, So I had all that background for them to go on. Um, so I worked with them on the film, but I didn't have any final say on, you know, the, the storyline that they used or the plot line that they used. There were a few things that were a little bit off that would give people the wrong impression in the film, but nothing major. Well, so when we talked about this, gosh, I don't know, several months ago, um, you enlightened me into this i'll call it a movement that's my words not anybody else's um that marv's persona or his actions anti-government actions have unleashed so let's let's start a little conversation about that particular component can you give us kind of the background and then you know lead us to what you think is the most important part well sure um I knew immediately, and if you read the book, you'll see this, that 
that uh, I was kind of on the wrong side of the story in some perspectives. Uh, right away during the rampage, people were being interviewed on the radio station saying, well, you know, Marv's really a good guy. He wouldn't do anything to hurt anybody. He's just getting back at the town that wronged him and the government that wronged him. And he's just damaging their property. And he's out standing up for the little guy that's, you know, been a victim of government. And this narrative started the very day of the rampage on the local radio station. And uh, letters to the editor that we ran in the newspaper, we, we never missed an edition, but we were already getting letters to the editor where people were defending Marv's actions, saying that he had been wronged by the town, that he had been wronged by the newspaper, that uh, he was justified in what he had done uh, because he had been uh, picked on by government and society. And uh, this narrative was strong and vociferous to the point where people were even telling lies, you know, oh, Marv didn't shoot at anybody. Uh, people, uh, he didn't want to hurt anybody. And, you know, all that's just not true. And uh, it even came to the point where the sheriff's department had to issue a press release pointing out that Marr had fired his weapons and had destroyed buildings and that he could have killed people very easily uh, just to counter the, the, the number of uh, rumors that were floating around both uh, in our letters to the editor. Now, this happened pre-social media. 2004 was just when uh, Facebook and social media was really taking off. So the, the main way online that people were getting their opinion out was through blogs. And uh, there was one prominent right-leaning blog that immediately, within two days after the rampage, was extolling the virtues of Marv and making up all kinds of false stories about what had happened. This guy had, was saying things like, oh, no, the police planted the gun in the bulldozer, that they actually killed Hemeyer, and that Hemeyer didn't have any guns in the bulldozer when he carried out the rampage. Um, and all that was demonstrably false. However, this was what he was saying on his blog, and his blog was being read all over the country. And in fact, the word killdozer, I didn't come up with that. Killdozer suddenly popped up on blogs and letters and uh, out there on the internet the day of the rampage. Uh, and killdozer is actually the name of a movie that came out in the early 70s uh, about a bulldozer that was, you know, possessed by aliens. Uh, it was a kind of a, a raunchy, uh, gray B movie, made-for-TV film. But uh, other people were using it right away. And uh, But anyway, this narrative that this guy was promoting just caught on like wildfire and... Uh, <clears throat> Marv, as this anti-government hero, took right off. And uh, <clears throat> so the real reason I wanted to write the book was because it just didn't stop this false narrative. And it made it, made it look like Granby had deliberately wronged and screwed Marv Hemeyer and the people at Granby had been so mean to him that he was justified in striking back at government and the government had been oppressive, et cetera, so on and so forth. 
And so he became this uh, hero, much to the giving Granby a black eye. And that's why I think for many years after, people were reluctant to talk a lot about the bulldozer incident because the prevailing narrative was that the people of Granby had been mean and cruel and awful to poor Marv. And boy, he was picked on by the town government. And boy, the government got what it deserved. This was the, he got, he got back at the man. And I want to tell you that I sat through every meeting. They let Marv get away with murder down there. If anything, they were too lenient with Marv. Um, there's a myth that they took away his sewer. They didn't take away his sewer. He didn't have any sewer to take away. Um, there's a myth that the town took an easement to his property away. This is completely false. Uh, Marv, none of the easements to Marv's business were ever taken away or blocked in the course of any of these trend of this stuff. There's a myth that the Thompson family was out to get him, completely bogus. In fact, they tried to work with him. Um, but Marv helped create that myth in his tapes as a way to justify what he was going to do. And people listened to his tapes, and boy, if you just listened to his tapes, you would think, yeah, the town really screwed him. So there's this prevailing anti-government narrative. Marv was, me, Marv was picked on by the town, and it just took off. And so I wrote the book, and I just wanted to say what happened. And uh, I think I was one of the few people in a position to really do that because I was there for all of it. I knew Marv. I'd been at the town for years. I was a victim of the rampage. Um, uh, so the last two chapters of the book go into this whole anti-hero narrative. And uh, it has done nothing but gotten worse since I published the book. And I got to tell you, you know, my blog gets all kinds of uh, comments, but most of them are extremely negative toward me and toward the book. They think I'm a jerk. They think I'm, you know, a pro-government apologist. And the language is usually not very flattering or nice. And they say Marv was a good guy and I'm a bad guy and the town screwed him and et cetera. And, uh, just as an example, one guy came out with a five-minute YouTube video where he tried to encapsulate the, uh, the bulldozer rampage, full of factual errors, blatant substitutes of graphic images and stuff, painting this whole image of the town theoretically took his sewer easement and blocked him from getting sewage. He ran photos of another sewage line and another hole in the ground. Uh, pictures of uh, a batch plant that wasn't the batch plant here in Granby, photos of the Granby Town Board, which is the Granby Connecticut Town Board, not the Granby Colorado Town Board. Um, uh, anyway, it, it was full of errors. And so I actually went out of my way to try to correct what the guy said. I posted on his YouTube comments that, you know, there's another side of the story that is true and, uh, you know, maybe you should try to correct it. And this is after he had gotten 70,000 either likes or comments. Most of them that say, yeah, Marv got back at the man. Marv's my hero, et cetera. And uh, my comments got shouted down. And uh, the guy finally sent me an email saying, hey, I really liked your comments. That's all he said. He never changed the video. 
And uh, mainly because that kind of anti-government false narrative gets a lot of likes and a lot of feedback from people. Yeah, uh, absolutely. There was a Facebook post, Facebook posting. I mean, they still come up, but there was one that came up at the 10 year anniversary where they ran a poem praising Marv and he was the victim of government and all that. It got literally 20, 30,000 face, Facebook comments. A friend of mine tried to uh, set the record straight and he got shouted down on Facebook as that can happen, you know. Uh, so the prevailing myth out there in the world of the World Wide Web and uh, Facebook and all that is that, you know, the town of Granby was mean and that Marv was wronged and that, you know, we deserved it. And the truth is, I think, anything but that. But he's been adopted now by many of the anti-government groups that are out there uh, in the midst of all the, the later years of the Trump presidency and particularly uh, leading up to the election. And exactly a year ago, uh, the Boogaloo Boys, which is one of these anti-government, right-wing, militia-type groups, loosely uh, aligned mainly through uh, dark web affiliations, uh, carried out uh, two killings in California. They killed policemen. And uh, research into their uh, online posting showed that they were big fans of Marv Emeyer and actually had adopted some of the terminology Marv had used in his writings, one of them being I became unreasonable. And uh, at one of the killing sites, one of the shooters had written in blood on the hood of a car, I became unreasonable. That's a direct reference to Marv Hemeyer. And uh, so the Boogaloo boys are uh, unapologetic about their worship of Marv. And, you know, I became unreasonable, became sort of their meme for what they do. And, uh, that's the general tone of how pernicious the myth of Marv Emeyer has become. And then what's the connection with the Hawaiian shirts? Well, Marv wore a Hawaiian shirt when he carried out the rampage. You can see it in photos of Marv in the bulldozer. And uh, I have supposed that the Boogaloo boys also wear Hawaiian shirts when they do their thing. Now that could be connected to the Boogaloo, you know, dance the Boogaloo, uh, you know, Hawaiian dance craze that some people say they mimic. I think it could also be directly related to the fact that Marv was also wearing a Hawaiian shirt when he carried out the rampage. Marv wasn't a Boogaloo boy. They weren't around in 2004, but I don't think, I think, I don't know if it's a coincidence that Mar that they wear a, Hawaiian shirts, and so did Marv when he carried out the rampage. Well, it's an interesting question. I uh, I think when we're done talking today, I might have to go out to the internet and look at some of the Capitol riot photos and see if there's any prominent Hawaiian shirts. You know, I haven't looked to see that, but uh, but you know, John, what what really disturbs me is it's a real thing that these false narratives that promote an anti-government, anti-society, kind of pro-gun uh, perspective uh, really takes off like wildfire, particularly online. And uh, they're not usually fact-based. They're usually based on events that sort of confirm people's pre-existing biases. Uh, 
and then they run with it. And uh, having said that, I don't think Marv was a ideological anti-government type. Uh, I think he was against the government of Granby. But Marv begins his tapes by saying, I'm an American patriot. It's like the very first thing he says. And anybody that has covered, that has covered the patriot movement or the far right movement would know that patriot is code. It's code for people who feel that we all have the right as citizens to take control of government in our own hands through whatever means necessary. It has sort of a survivalist ethos behind it. And uh, it goes back to the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City, all the way up to now, to the Capitol riot. Uh, patriots are seen as these sort of gun-toting survivalists that are out there to, you know, rein in out of control and out of overrun government. Uh, and uh, we, we have that now, and Marv has just become one of their heroes. So when Marv said, I'm an American patriot, I think he had the patriot movement in mind. But he doesn't go into it in an, ideolo in an ideological sense, either in his tapes or in some things he ever said in meetings. But clearly, that had to have been motivating some of his thinking. Wow. It's such a broad topic now. I uh, was prepping for our chat today, and I was looking on online at Amazon and other places where your book's for sale. And it's fascinating to me, the, the differences in the reviews, a lot of, you know, five-star reviews, but very negative about the portrayal of Marv. And I can only imagine what the social media would be like if this happened today. Can you imagine how much conversation there would be if this was to happen, if this had happened in 2021? I think it would, it would blow up. And, you know, John, I have to tell you that uh, I keep waiting for somebody to do it again. Um, you know, the barrier they built around the Capitol includes in certain areas what they call anti-tank barriers. There's actually stuff there to resist a, a tank attack. Um, aside from the fencing, there's that. Um, and so I hope it doesn't happen because I wouldn't wish it on anybody. I think the total damage caused by Marv amounts to about $10 million. Um, if his goal was to get back at us financially, he, he succeeded. Cost me and the, the business a lot of money. Cost all the victims here a lot of money. Uh, people like to joke that, well, you know, he sort of did a facelift in Granby, but I can tell you right now that I'd much rather have the old building back right where we were than have to put up with all that stuff. And I'll bet you the town's in the same boat, and so is Casey and Gambles and the Thompsons and the Dochefs. I mean, you know, we'd never want to have that happen again. How can you possibly justify what he did? Even if he had been wronged, 
which he hadn't been. He just lost. He just lost his battle with the town. And the real irony is, is that Marv actually walked away pretty good. He sold his property. He got $400,000 for it. He bought it for $40,000. He finally got that high price he wanted. But all that happened after I think he had decided he was going to do something to get it back at the people that he thought had wronged him. And uh, Marv invented this whole sort of uh, myth that he was going to redeem the town and teach us a lesson about what he had, we had done wrong to him, uh, sort of along the lines of him being a vigilante, carrying out you know God's duty to correct the wayward people out here in the corrupt wilderness of Granby, Colorado. And he was going to come in and clean us up. I, I, that's the narrative he invents in his tapes. Well, the tapes are actually really interesting. I, I had, I had no idea based upon the stories that I've been told that these tapes existed. And when I watched the video, the movie, uh, the Netflix movie, that's a little chilling actually to hear him speak about how he felt and how he, uh, his perspective. I think, you know, I'm not here to judge. I'm just saying that, you know, a voice from the grave, if you want to think about it like that, it's, it was a very eye-opening movie. And I, and I think that that audio is chilling. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really amazing. And uh, the first time I heard the tapes, which was, in September of 2004, only a few months after the rampage, you know, I was disturbed by them because, you know, if you believe everything he says, then yeah, he was, he was justified in going out and getting the town. But Marv invented this false narrative that was wrong. You know, this idea that somehow the Thompson family was out to get him is hilarious and false. Um, this idea that the town board met in secret and con conspired against them. I mean, what they did, John, was they made a few mistakes, but they were scared of Marv. They weren't out to get him. <laughs> I mean, a year after all those hearings, most people had forgotten about it all. Yet Marv was sitting there stewing about it, thinking he had been screwed, you know? Yeah, I do. I do think that in any situation, there's, two or three sides to the story. And, you know, if you listen to, if you were to listen to you in a vacuum, you know, that's one perspective. If you were to have sat in those meetings, that's another perspective. And if you were to listen to Marv's tapes in a vacuum, that's another perspective. And I think you got to put those all together to see the real truth. And while I'm sure some people don't agree with your perspective, I think that both you and the movie portray a more even or balanced perspective and then a person can judge for themselves what they think is accurate or inaccurate right i mean i don't you know what's factual isn't a matter of judgment was the bulldozer driving down the street destroying buildings this is a fact did he shoot at cody dochev that's a fact yes uh, did he knock over concrete barriers and try to kill cops when he did it? That's a fact. I mean, you can't dispute it. Yet people will say that's not true. Marv didn't want to hurt anybody. 
So this kind of other sideism doesn't really hold water. You know, we can say, oh, yeah, this guy thinks the sky is blue today. This guy thinks it's green. But we know the sky is really blue. Just because we give this guy a chance to say it's green doesn't mean there's much validity to the guy that says the sky is green. And our society is crippled today by this notion of other sideism. If some guy gets on TV and utters an utter falsity that's demonstrably not true based on trying to contradict something that is true, I don't think it's a 50-50 equal equality. If it's not true, then I think you just have a right to either throw it out or dismiss it. But we're in this game where, oh, we got to present both sides and try to be fair, you know. I don't think it's fairness to the world if we're out there giving credence to things that are simply not true, that are factually incorrect, but promulgated as such. And a lot of this stuff about Marv, oh, the town took his easement. That's factually false. It never happened. Oh, the town didn't let him get his sewer. That's factually true, incorrect. It's wrong. Uh, the town was out to uh, uh, stop him. That's factually, that's just not right. And so, yeah, we present Marv's perspective. Marv invented a false narrative to justify his actions. But, you know, we well, can I talk that, about that. You know, I think that it's not limited to Marv. There's uh, epidemic of false information because of the internet and the availability to speak publicly and touch many, many people. I mean, I'm not, not trying to turn this into a political conversation, but there is no question that, you know, recent events in the United States of America that have been proven false by repeated outlets in the media doesn't change the fact that somebody said that, you know, it was black when it was really white or it was red when it was really blue. And, you know, whatever people, people want to believe what they want to believe. And sometimes for those people, the facts just don't matter. Right. But so uh, I'll get on my soapbox and say that, uh, you know, in 50 years, there's going to be pundits saying uh, social media and the unfettered uh, dialogue that takes place in social media and on the internet, if you want to put it that way, either ruined or came darn close to ruining American democracy because it allows the dissemination of falsehood to take off in a way that just goes nuts. And it happens frequently through uh, bots and uh, people circulating stuff that aren't really people. And uh, I, I kind of think that the rule that allows social media sites to repost people's uh, statements and have no liability for them at all is wrong and should be changed. Um, and I think all they have to do is say, yeah, you can say whatever you want on our platform, but we want to know who you are and we want to pr you to prove who you are to us. And uh, they don't do that now. Two-thirds of the postings that are up there are, you know, bots that have been sealed to say things by people sitting in Russia, China, Taiwan, you name it. Yet there's people out here that believe them. 
because there's 10,000 posts that say the same thing by seemingly 10,000 different people confirming their most negative beliefs and they're false and they're being promulgated by robots. Well, this is a, this is a conversation for a whole nother day. You know, the first amendment in my view was written to not allow one party to withhold the truth or not publish the truth that another party wants to speak. The First Amendment, in my view, uh, was not intended to protect people who spread absolute falsehoods for their own personal benefit. And so at some point in time, the United States is going to have to reconcile what that really means to all of the people that are law-abiding citizens. And I certainly don't want to dispute it right now, but I, I do I, I do have a legitimate concern for my kids and grandkids that they're going to grow up in a world where the First Amendment protects people who want to spread fear, uncertainty, doubt, terror, and whatnot, because they can say, well, I have the First Amendment right to say whatever I want. I don't think that's really what the founding fathers intended. No, I don't think it is either. Um, I'm here trying to find uh, the information on that uh, law that basically gives uh, web platforms, social media platforms, uh, immunity, basically, uh, for things that are posted on their sites. But it's a rule, and even President Trump thinks that rule should be amended and or changed or thrown out. Even President Trump thinks that. And he said it many times. Uh, So from both the right and the left, that rule uh, should, in a lot of people's eyes, either be amended or thrown out. And I don't care if it makes Facebook go broke. I don't care if it makes it less interesting. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I think it would help the picture of dialogue in our country re- a lot. And uh, I think it's interesting that there's lawsuits being entered into uh, against those guys that were saying that, uh, you know, the election was corrupt and all that. Let's see where those lawsuits go. But I think that it's because people were uttering those falsehoods on uh, platforms other than Facebook. Yeah, I agree. And, Facebook's uh, anyway, not, we Facebook's not the villain. I think it's a problem across the across the Internet. But nevertheless, this, as I said, is a very slippery slope and a conversation for another day. Right. But so anyway, uh, I, I, I urge people to read the book um, and uh, watch the documentary form your own opinion. If you want to hear all the other points of view, all you got to do is go online. Most of the stuff you find on Facebook is going to be uh, amazingly one-sided in favor of what Marv did and against government and the people. And yeah, he got back at the man, but I caution that kind of thinking because I actually feel sorry with the way in which Marv convinced himself that he was right. And any man that lets himself go that far based on a false narrative that he created, that's someone to be pitied and feel sorry for. 
Well, let's end our chat today on that note. Uh, I think this is a great conversation that has very broad sweeping impact. The The book is fascinating. The movie is fascinating. The, the stories that you hear walking down the street in Granby from people like yourself and others that were there on that day, I think are fascinating. And I would encourage everyone to learn more. Thanks, John. And thanks for the time to talk about it. I appreciate it. The book is for sale around the county. So keep your eyes open if you haven't read it or bought it, or you can buy it on Amazon too. So I'll publish those links so everybody knows where to go. Thanks, John. Thanks, Patrick. We'll talk. This is Grand County Matters.